Hello, you guys, and welcome back to That's Insane, a podcast where I talk about medicine, murder, and maybe more, but most definitely more because there's lots of weird shit out there. My name is Aurelia, and I am your host. Today, we have a true crime case. As always, the disclaimer I make on all of these episodes is that this podcast is meant to be a respectful retelling of these victims' cases. It is not meant to make light of their cases or to be done in a joking manner. This is about friends discussing cases that interest them or fascinate them or sadden them and respect the victims and the victims' families. With that being said, today's case is one that I think about often. This is probably one of the first cases that I saw on Forensic Files. I don't think it's the very first episode, but it is. it, it was the first episode, I believe, that I watched. And I remember coming home from my job when I was like 16, 17 years old. I think that I worked at like an ice cream shop. And I'm pretty sure that they closed at like 11 on the weekends. So sometimes I wouldn't get home until like midnight. And I would remember coming home and making ramen noodles and sitting in like the living space off of our kitchen while my dad like played on his computer. And I would watch Forensic Files and eat my chicken ramen noodles until like 1.30 in the morning. We love a good Forensic Files. Anyway, that had nothing to do with the story, but I just wanted to tell you about my life. So this is the tragic murder of Reina Marakin. There is a trigger warning for this episode regarding suicide and infant death. So if that is something that you think would upset you or trigger you, then this episode may not be the best for you. So on September 2nd, 1999, Ronald Cohen and his family were moving out of their house in Jericho, Long Island, after selling it to a man named Hamid Tafagodi. Hamid had asked that all debris be cleared from the house before he moved in, and the main reason for this was to remove a 55-gallon drum that had been tucked in a crawl space underneath a part of the house that had been added on previously. Cohen said that the barrel had been there since they had moved in, but he never thought much of it. Personally, I'm I'm too much of a nosy bitch, so I'm very surprised by that. But So he left it out on the curb after hauling it up the stairs and waited for the trashman to take it, but they were unable to as it was 345 pounds and too heavy to take. So Cohen decided that he was curious and um, he wanted to see what would be in the drum, so he opened it. And when he did, he discovered a hand and a woman's shoe sticking out of these plastic pellets along with a green sludgy liquid. Of course, he called the authorities right away. And when police arrived, they then discovered the well-mummified body of a woman who was nine months pregnant with a baby boy. After further examination, they determined that the woman was between 25 and 30 years old, and she was either Caucasian or Hispanic, and she died about 30 years prior. It appeared that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, um, and authorities also discovered an address book, makeup, a pocketbook, a note, some rings, and a plastic flower stem in the barrel as well. They also found a locket that said, To Patrice from Uncle Paul, engraved on it. The medical examiner identified that the woman had two gold crowns on her teeth that appeared to be from somewhere in South America, which is 
very fascinating that they are able to determine the geographic location of that. So dentists weigh in, is that, are there like different techniques? I, I don't know. That's, that's very interesting. So Ronald Cohen was investigated and he explained that the drum had been in the home since he'd moved there. And apparently there had only been four owner four owners of the house prior to Cohen. I found mixed information regarding who built the addition to the home. It appears that Howard Elkin was the original owner of the home, and one source said that he built the addition that created that crawl space where the drum was, but another source said that the second owner built the addition to the house and just moved the barrel into the crawl space so it was out of sight. Either way, the only owner who claimed to know nothing about the drum was the first one. When Howard Elkin was asked if he'd ever been in the crawl space, he responded, quote, what for, end quote, which, you know, answering a question with a question is not always great. Detectives used the serial number on the barrel to trace its origin and found it came from a company called Melrose Plastics. Melrose Plastics was a company in Manhattan that made artificial flowers in the 1960s, and this also made sense regarding the plastic pellets that were found in the drum, and the company identified the green sludge as a dye that was used for the fake plants. Authorities examined the other contents in the drum, and they found the address book and the note were not readable, so they sent it to a forensic lab where it could be dried and examined with a video spectral comparator. Comparator? Comparator, video spectral comparator, that's what I'm going to go with, which apparently manipulates light so you can see the writing on a piece of paper that to the naked eye can, like, that the naked eye can no longer see. Unbelievable. The note read, don't be mad, I told the truth, which is so chilling, and I feel like that would be something, like, straight out of a movie. The address book had the word marakeen written on it as well, and an immigrant visa number. And so when they tracked the immigrant visa number, it led detectives to a woman named Reina Marroquin. I don't have a lot of information on Reina. I looked really hard, but she was born on December 2nd, 1941 in El Salvador. In August 1966, Reina left El Salvador after an unsuccessful marriage, and she moved to New York to live that classic American dream. According to her mom, she used to say, quote, I'm going to be somebody, I'm going to be somebody someday, end quote. She learned to speak English, and she took job training classes. She was able to get a job as a factory worker, and she consistently sent letters to her family back in El Salvador, letting them know that she was doing well. However, these letters stopped in 1969, and her family became worried that something may have happened to her. Her family reported her missing, but unfortunately, I couldn't find much else, um, again, about her childhood or otherwise, but she was obviously very loved and was just trying to make a better life for herself. The address book was able to be traced back to Reina, um, but the book also had another name on it, Katie Andrade, and police were able to locate her and found that she still resided in the same address listed in the address book, which is quite lucky. Police went and talked to Katie, who was a friend of Reina's, and they learned that Reina had been having an affair with a married man. Katie said that Reina had been acting oddly in the months prior to her disappearance, and Reina had confided in Katie that she was pregnant. Now, according to some reports I found, Reina apparently lived at a shelter run by nuns when she first came to the U.S., but her boyfriend apparently had rented her an apartment, 
and paid for the doctor's visits when he found out that she was pregnant. Of course, it was the, the, the timeless tale that the man had said he would leave his wife, Farina, but she said he took very good care of her. At least that's what he, she told Katie. As her due day approached, though, Raina said it became clear that her boyfriend was not going to leave his wife. Katie said that Raina called her one day panicking, saying she was afraid of the man because she had called his wife and told her about the affair. Katie went to Raina's apartment after that phone call, but it was empty and she never heard from her again. Katie apparently waited at Raina's apartment for a few hours before eventually going to the police station to report her missing. But, of course, the police brushed it off, saying that Raina had just ran off with her boyfriend, and they told Katie to come back in a few weeks if Raina was still missing. Katie also couldn't technically file a a report anyway because she wasn't a relative of Raina's. She actually didn't know who the boyfriend was, so she couldn't even, like, contact them to be like, what's going on? Which I did not know that you... I don't know if it's still like this. I didn't know that you couldn't file missing persons reports if you weren't related, which in cases like this, you know, if she is an immigrant and doesn't have any family here, like, it just shows you how uncared for these people were. Police still weren't sure when this drum first appeared in the home. When they traced the serial number, they were able to... to determine that the drum was made in 1963, and they used this info to figure that the murder occurred then between 1963 and 1972, because I'm assuming 1972 was when the next homeowner came. They looked at the homeowner records for that time and found that Howard Elkin was the homeowner of the house at that time, and they also discovered that Howard was part owner of Melrose Plastics. Obviously, they wanted to speak with Howard, and he had moved down to Florida, so they flew down there to talk to him. Now, I saw one source say that Howard admitted to having an affair with a woman at Melrose Plastics, but then I found more that said he claimed to never know who Raina was. However, it's clear that Howard was uncooperative because he declined giving a DNA sample for a paternity test on the fetus that was found in the drum with Raina. Police threatened that they would be back with a court order for the DNA, and Howard asked the police to leave so he could talk to his wife privately. Police went to the West Palm Beach County DA to obtain a warrant for the DNA, but the next day, on September 10th, his family reported Howard missing. His son then found Howard later that day in the garage of a friend's home, and he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Apparently, after the police left, Howard went and bought a shotgun and killed himself. There was no suicide note found. I think what I read was that he was, like, house-sitting in the garage, but, like, why in a friend's home that is so... I That just, like, bothered me quite a bit. Police obtained the DNA sample from Howard after his death, and even though the fetus was significantly deteriorated, they were able to match a positive paternity paternity test result with a 99.93% accuracy rate. Police saw Howard's suicide as an omission of guilt, which, I mean, I would too. It's believed that Howard called Raina and told her to come to the factory where he then beat her to death. They think that he took her body back to the house, put her body in the drum, and then planned to sink her remains in the ocean, which is why they think he filled it with the the plastic pellets. But when he went to move it, he realized he'd underestimated the weight and after he had already sealed it. So he instead just pushed the barrel into that crawl space and left it there. 
it almost kind of makes me think of the Edgar Allan Poe, what is it, the the beating heart under the floorboard. I would just think, how can you live in your home knowing that this woman and your child, your unborn child, are in a drum in your crawl space and you're just going about living your life like nothing happen. I also believe in ghosts and I would have haunted the shit out of him. And if I was like the wife or something, I'd be like, what is in that drum? But maybe she didn't go down there that much. Who knows? I also just still find it insane that every homeowner after that wasn't like, hey, dude, you left this drum here. Like, what's in it? I mean, thank God that they didn't because who knows what would have happened, I guess. But yeah, tragic and just unimaginable. So Oscar Coral, who was a reporter for the News Daily, flew to El Salvador and found Reina's mother, who was now 95. She said that she had dreamt that Reina was stuck in a barrel somewhere. And then they flew, they were able to fly Reina's remains back to El Salvador, where she was buried just one month before her mother passed away. So she was able to at least pass away with some knowledge and uh, closure about her daughter that had been missing for 30 plus years. And uh, that is the tragic and horrible story of Reina Marroquin, aka the woman in the drum. Like I said, I think about this case quite a bit. I believe it was one of the first episodes I saw of Forensic Files, and it's just kind of always stuck with me. My sources for today are thecriminaljournal.com, truecrimemysteries.com, grunge.com, and of course, Wikipedia. But yeah, I really appreciate you guys listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I hope that you tune back in. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at that's insane underscore pod. And if you have any crazy true crime stories, crazy medical stories, or just weird shit in general that you want me to look into, make sure to send an email to that's insane podcast at gmail.com. Until then, I'll see you next time. Bye.